This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee will join us to talk about Canada's new impaired driving laws and to take your calls as well. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Another banner week for TransLink, as Metro Vancouver's Public Transportation Authority has received the 2019 Outstanding Public Transportation System Achievement Award from the American Public Transportation Association in the major transit system category of over 20 million annual riders. The evaluation window was 2016 through 18, and during that period, ridership here grew by 18%, much more than any other system in Canada or the States, and much faster than population or employment growth here. TransLink points to its efforts to bring in a culture of public accountability to its plans, along with an action plan for future growth in the mayor's Council. Try to remember all of these accolades tonight as you are heading to and from the fireworks show, along with, oh, a quarter million other local folks, all of whom plan to take the train, too. British Columbians can now visit another Canadian province and bring back an unlimited amount of alcohol, our government said this week. The move also applies to people from other provinces who visit us. The government said the new policy took effect July 8th. And it is in tandem with actions taken by other provinces. Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia recently eliminated personal exemption limits. PEI is moving in the same direction. Previously, our government limited residents to bring in no more than three liters of spirits, nine liters of wine, and 25.6, no less, liters of beer, cider, and coolers. There was no limit on wine purchased from a Canadian winery and made with 100% Canadian product. Now, these changes may result in increased sales for local producers to out-of-province visitors, and it takes a little pressure off those who would like to bring home some samples, some evidence from their holiday travels. Well, you know, it's certainly not one of Canada's big banks, but Quebec's Laurentian Bank is a local institution, and as of Monday, customers will no longer have access to any tellers in all of its branches in Montreal. Six rural locations will continue with tellers until September. This is all part of a plan that began a few years ago in 2016 to offer only branch-level financial advice by the end of 2019. 31 of 91 locations have already completely eliminated their tellers. Laurentian is Canada's seventh largest bank, and it began to warn customers more than four months ago about the change that will result in the elimination of 350 positions. And here's the really weird part. Laurentian wants customers to use automatic tellers and online banking, but it still doesn't offer an app. Acrimonious negotiations with about 1,200 unionized employees ended in March when 81% of those workers accepted the bank's contract proposal. So, no tellers and online banking instead with no online banking app. 
Now, how comfortable would you feel about putting your money down uh, with those folks? Oh, and Vancouver police took more than 40 impaired drivers off city streets last weekend during a counterattack blitz. Over three days, more than 350 drivers were pulled over and given drug and alcohol tests, which resulted in 44 license suspensions and 35 vehicle impoundments. The overwhelming majority of suspensions were related to alcohol consumption. Only two of them were issued for drug use, though what types of drugs were consumed in those cases was not disclosed. Police did note, however, that marijuana impairment on the roads is a rarity, and no measurable uptick has been seen in any police data since marijuana was legalized last year. And those stats have stayed consistent for years, too. The annual counterattack roadblocks are a partnership between your local police and ICBC, and it aims to promote safe driving and Take impaired drivers off the road. Impaired driving remains one of the leading causes of traffic fatalities in B.C. And the cops also remind us the summer counterattack program will continue right through Labor Day. Those are some more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll check out a few more later in the hour. But coming right up, we'll open up our phone lines for your calls on the new rules around impaired driving. What rights do you have if you're stopped in a counterattack roadblock on the way home tonight? When can you contact a lawyer if you're deemed to be impaired? There have been changes recently. Do you know even what those changes are? Well, we'll have some answers for you right after the break, right here on Vancouver Consumer. Welcome back to the program on this lovely Saturday afternoon. The big fireworks show coming up. India, for the very first time participating in the Honda Celebration of Light. It's going to be quite this spectacular show. Canada on Wednesday, Croatia a week from tonight. A pleasure to welcome back criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation to Vancouver Consumer. Hello, Kyla. Hello, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, we were talking about Operation Summer Counterattack here a few moments ago. Big blitz last weekend. A pretty safe bet that they'll be out in large numbers tonight with all of the festivities going on and various uh, functions and so on. Um, but I, I talked a little bit about the changes to impaired driving laws. This is your particular area of specialization in the law. And I don't know how many Canadian drivers, Kyla, are aware of the fact that with the introduction of legal cannabis about a year ago, the government also amended other laws, giving themselves and their police departments permission to do things they couldn't up until a year ago. Let's let's delve into that. What have the big changes been? One of the biggest changes that we've seen has been the introduction of mandatory random breath testing. So now if a police officer pulls you over or you're stopped at a counterattack roadblock, you can be asked to provide a breath sample and you're legally obligated to comply. No right to a lawyer, no right to do anything first. You just have to blow. Well, now there used to be something that you you will remember called probable cause. I pulled the guy over, Your Honor, because there was erratic driving behavior and I had reason to believe the individual might be impaired. 
That is no longer a requirement for the police. They don't have to justify pulling you over anymore, do they? No, as long as they're they're justifying it by saying they're stopping you to check your sobriety, that you have a driver's license, that you're medically fit to drive, or that your vehicle is fit to be on the road, they can stop you at any point. They don't have to see anything at all. They can stop you for going perfectly straight in your lane at exactly the speed limit and say, well, that's suspicious. I'm going to check sobriety. Mm, so if you've got a broken taillight or anything that would attract any uh, attention at all, that could be permission on, alone. Yep. Well, there's something wrong here. Let's just pull this guy over. And if there's nothing wrong, they can still pull you over just for the purposes of doing a breath test and making sure you're sober and safe to drive. And this came with the cannabis package, didn't it? This all came down at the same time uh, last October when cannabis became legal. Yes, we had massive overhaul of impaired driving laws in this country. So there were lots of changes and it's it's basically a new world out there for impaired driving law. Okay, so I, I just came back from my summer break uh, in Ontario a couple of weeks ago and I had this um, discussion. I'll say kindly, with my lawyer brother-in-law, who does business law and doesn't do criminal law, but, you know, he's got a new car and he's kind of uh, talking about it. And so we start, uh, somehow or another, the conversation leads to being pulled over. And I say, well, you know, the new laws, since they made pot legal, they've, they've done a lot to given themselves permission to do things I bet you don't even know about. Oh, like what? Well, like you uh, uh, don't have access to a lawyer. If you get pulled over by a police officer who says, I have reason to suspect you are impaired and I need you to do the following. Take this test, do the sobriety roadside business. You can't say, give me just a second, officer. I'm going to call my lawyer first. You can't do that now, can you? You cannot. So you were correct in that debate. Um, You don't have the right to a lawyer before participating in any roadside sobriety testing, whether it's blowing into a breathalyzer, providing a saliva sample, or doing the standardized field sobriety tests. And that means that you can't even call, for example, and say, Kyla, I've just been pulled over. At which point, if I was lucky enough to get through, your only advice would be cooperate and do exactly as they ask you to do. Yes, because it's a criminal offense to refuse to participate in those tests. So if you say, I'm not going to do your tests or I'm not going to do it until I call a lawyer, you've committed a criminal offense. And the consequences uh, after the changes came in went up for refusing to participate in the tests or to provide breath samples. So now if you're convicted of saying, no, I'm not going to do it, you're looking at a mandatory minimum $2,000 fine, one-year prohibition from driving, and a criminal record. My goodness. And, and of course, again, ignorance of the law is never an excuse. I didn't know they changed this stuff last year. Um, uh, so give me a break. Cut me some slack. Not a chance. That's not how the law works, right? No, it's not how the law works. Thankfully, most of the time in those situations, police officers will take a moment to explain the law to sure, people and sure. explain why they don't have the right to a lawyer. But you do get cases where police officers go, okay, and take the refusal and charge the person. And those are the most difficult cases for me to defend because what can you say? You said no, you refused, you committed the offense. And there's no legal obligation on the police to provide any legal advice whatsoever roadside to try and encourage you not to refuse. Interesting. It's, it's like in our last hour, we were talking with our estate planner and it's not Revenue Canada's job to teach us about all the loopholes they've made for us to follow. So it's the same kind. It's not the law's job to educate us about the law. It's the law's job to enforce the law, right? Yeah. It's just, it's that simple. But how many of us are, a ballpark percentage, are even aware of the degree of changes that have occurred in the last year? 
I think very few, despite the fact that, you know, you've uh, very nicely had me on this program several times to talk about them. And and despite the fact that I've seen a lot of public discussion about it, everywhere I go, I meet people who aren't aware of this. And I'm constantly educating people about what the new law says, what their rights are, and what their obligations are. And your obligations right now far outweigh your rights in impaired driving investigations. Now, is this subject, and I mean, I know you would love an opportunity to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada and tell them how wrong this all is and ask for a judgment in your favor. Um, how likely or how how far away might me, we be from some form of, of challenge to this very new, very wide latitude law? There have been challenges filed already, so I'm involved in one that's been filed in BC Supreme Court uh, on behalf of a group of cases that have been joined together with another law firm in Victoria. Um, and uh, that's uh, in the initial planning stages for when the hearing's going to be scheduled. Um, there's also a challenge that's been filed in Yukon that I'm aware of, uh, that I'm also sort of peripherally involved in, and then finally a challenge that's been in, filed in Ontario. So it's happening. Um, basically, as soon as the police put these powers in motion, people were ready to challenge it and and wanting to get in the courts and say, look, this is wrong. We shouldn't have this. We shouldn't turn Canada into what is closer to becoming a police state. So let's talk about the next door neighbors, because more and more American jurisdictions are legalizing cannabis, as we have done nationally. We've seen now, for example, the entire West Coast of North America, B.C., Washington, Oregon, California, all legal jurisdictions, Massachusetts, and the list does go on and on. What's the difference, if any, between the way the police have been authorized to deal with this in these many American jurisdictions versus here in Canada? Well, leading up to legalization in most of the American states, if you got caught with, you know, a couple joints on you, you would be in big trouble. For sure. Whereas if you got caught with a couple joints on you in Canada, you may just get let go. The police may take them or, you know, in extremely rare circumstances, you might end up charged. And usually those circumstances, if you look at the statistics, were involving something more significant, mm-hmm. somebody with a lengthy criminal history or people who were from minority groups where they were historically over-policed. Um, but generally speaking, the culture and the attitude from government and police forces about cannabis in the U.S., has been vastly different from what we've had here. And so when we legalized cannabis here, um, there wasn't these huge spikes in impaired driving. Right. Because we were all used to using it and it was kind of just accepted that everybody was doing it. Like in Vancouver, you were just saying the numbers have been consistent even now. And you would agree. You're the lawyer in this conversation. You're the, yep. poli- the police say there really hasn't been any measurable increase in impaired uh, busts of people who are uh, cannabis impaired. There never have been. this, And it's still constant. It's very low on, on, the, on the radar. Exactly. And that's probably because we've had the greatest sort of welcome access to cannabis pre-legalization in Vancouver sure. than pretty much anywhere else in the world. I mean, you could walk into any store uh, and buy it on the street, uh, even though it wasn't legal, and even though you didn't have a prescription, it was just something that we did in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and therefore, were there to be a jurisdiction in which lots of marijuana impairment busts had have occurred, it certainly would be Vancouver, and that's simply not the case. Exactly. Okay. I did open up the phone lines, kind of. I'll give the number now officially. Bill's already on on the case here. It's uh, 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. The lawyer is in the house. The advice, uh, however temporarily, is free. And Bill is uh, lined up in the first spot on the board. Bill, thank you for waiting. Good day. 
Thank, thank you. Um, Kyla, I may have asked you this before on this program. I can't recall, but how rare... Oh, it's kind of a difficult question. I, how rare would it be for somebody to, to like, blow a fail twice after, say, having two average drinks, for that, example? That's not very rare. Um, it happens oh. all the time because everybody's body is different. And um, depending on your body weight, two drinks could put you over the limit. That's true for some, yeah. Um, oh. And in lots of circumstances, there's other factors that contribute to the fail result. You might have uh, intervening presence of alcohol in your mouth or uh, another factor that could cause the result to be falsely elevated. So I see a lot of cases involving people who had only, you know, one or two drinks, but mm. still nevertheless provide two fail ratings. Interesting stuff. You did a thing, you and one of your colleagues at Acumen Law, Paul Doroshenko, did a kind of a quasi-scientific experiment where you took a hand sanitizer, which, I mean, they're available everywhere these days. Tell us about that. So we looked at whether or not you could fail a roadside breathalyzer by using hand sanitizer, but not ingesting it in any way. So we rubbed hand sanitizer on our hands Mm -hmm. and then just touched our faces and then blew into the roadside breathalyzer. And both of us blew positive readings for alcohol, even though we had not consumed any alcohol and even though we hadn't put the hand sanitizer in our mouths or swallowed it. Just because of you, it was was on your face, close enough to your mouth that those... That, that 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 was all you needed. It was and, and you you would have you would have been busted on on the roadside had you been uh, had, had that been uh, an actual police situation. Oh, and for sure, I would have been asked to blow had that been an actual police situation because I would have smelled very strongly of alcohol right. because hand sanitizer contains alcohol. Ah, so there you go, and it's just that easy too. Is and and did you really soak yourselves in this stuff, or just to, as as normally you would with a hand sanitizer, a quick rub and away you go? Just a normal amount. How about that? Back to the phones, John. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir. Go ahead, yes, please. Uh, I'd like to ask your uh, the uh, legal uh, opinion on. I was stopped and uh, uh, blowing after blowing the first time. I, he said I was blowing too hard, and I'd also like to preface this by saying that uh, that is there any, not entrapment anymore. This is just driving out of a parking lot, right? And and they wait till you get on the street, and then they pull you out over a block uh, down the way. But my question basically is. I, I had consumed uh, over a period of almost two hours, two pints of beer, and I, I had drank that, and uh, but I didn't feel any way I was impaired. Right. Now, the, the policeman uh, said that I could take another test. Uh, I, I did blow a warning. But he said, if you take, if you blow another test and it's it's uh, worse than this one, he said, I'm charging you with the worst one. And I was wondering if 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 that's true, and also could I have requested a blood test? Uh, because there was no way that I felt that I was impaired, and I do question the the validity of the uh, the machine and how quickly it was used after I'd uh, I'd left the establishment. Okay, John, let's uh, let's hear what Kyla has to say then. So, first thing, you don't have the right to demand or request a blood test. Police are only permitted to take blood samples in very certain circumstances that wouldn't apply there. Um, secondly, the time period between when you finish your last drink and when you do the test is very important. If you have something within 15 minutes of when you're blowing into the device, it can cause falsely high readings. Okay. 
And as far as the police officer telling you that uh, the if the second result was higher, your punishment would be worse, that was only true up until uh, about November 2011 in the first version of BC's roadside prohibition law. But after that, the law was changed. And from uh, June 15th, 2012 until now, um, if you blow a second test, uh, the police have to serve you the punishment based on the lower of the two readings. So there's uh-huh. no nothing to lose. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer this fine Saturday afternoon. It is 3.35. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. You can find them online at acumenlaw.ca. Acumen is A-C-U-M-E-N. Our phone lines are wide open for your calls. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Peter, you're a patient kind of guy. Thank you for that. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, I like to know. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I have no health issues. But I take my vitamins every day. I have my vitamins in my car and a bunch of vitamins in my house. I carry them all the way, every, anywhere I go. It's in my car. Will Will it affect uh, when when they stop me? Vitamins won't affect the result of a roadside breath tester, but um, if you are taking like a, a like a liquid vitamin or like a tincture and you use that within 15 minutes of the test, you should check the ingredients very carefully because lots of tinctures contain ethanol as an ingredient. And if you're taking any CBD tinctures, um, you should check the ingredients of those very carefully because if they're not completely CBD and they do have a small concentration of THC, we have found in studies that we've done that it will cause false positives on saliva testing for THC. Peter, are, are your uh, vitamins uh, in solid or liquid form? Uh, it's uh, tablets, like okay. capsules and um, tablets and... Uh, uh, like omega threes. Sure. Uh, okay. okay. Those those shouldn't impact the results of the test. What I would say though is, if you're going to carry them in your car, don't have them in plain view unless they're in the official packaging. Because if police see just a random tablet or a bunch of tablets in your vehicle, they might be concerned that they're more serious drugs and not vitamins, and you might be detained and searched and and questioned about them. All right, Peter. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of worried. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks very much for the call. Uh, We talked uh, in one of your previous appearances about the Draeger 5000, I believe the number was. This was a testing device approved by Canada for use in this country uh, for roadside sobriety testing of uh, cannabis impairment. The big drawback with this was that it didn't work very reliably in temperatures of plus four Celsius or lower. Well, this happens to be a country in which temperatures of plus four Celsius or lower are kind of the norm for at least half of the year, longer in many parts of the country. So that was pretty unreliable and almost laughable. But now someone has approved a second device. Tell us about that. So the second device that the federal government has approved is called the Abbott Sotoxa. Uh, It's formerly known as the Allaire DDS-2. And the reason the name change is important is because this was a device that was pilot tested by the federal government back in 2016 when they were contemplating bringing in roadside saliva testing. And in the pilot testing, the Allaire DDS-2 performed very poorly. There was even one occasion where that device gave false positive readings on every single person 
person that was tested for cannabis. Two separate devices malfunctioned that way. And it wasn't until the police went, well, this is off the trend. Mm -hmm. They tested themselves. They got positives for cannabis and went, something is wrong here (laughs) because we haven't used any cannabis products. Interesting stuff. So they must have done more than change the name. They changed the name. That's all they did. It no. was essentially the uh, the uh, the Boeing Max 8's name change to cover up the scandal, um, to try and distance themselves from from what had happened in the pilot testing. But if you actually look into the literature that the federal government themselves commissioned, these devices aren't much better than the Drager Drug Test 5000. They work in a wider operating temperature range, but that might be the best that I could say about them. Interesting stuff. And yet these are the devices that the, the government has decided will be used to, well, um, make people guilty in legal situations. Well, they won't be used to make people guilty, but they will be used as a stepping stone to get there. So the saliva testing is used to give the officer reasonable grounds to arrest somebody or that probable cause that you referred to okay, earlier. Right, right. And then from there, they take them back to the police station. They subject them to a series of physical coordination tests and medical evaluations, then take a blood or a urine sample and analyze that for drugs. Oh, okay. So, uh, and all of, what is what does the individual do while all of this is going on, all of these additional tests? which presumably kick in after you flunk the first one, right? Well, I mean, the first thing you should do before you do those tests, at that point, you do have the right to contact a lawyer and you should absolutely call a lawyer. This is before a blood test or any other more sophisticated, anything more than sophisticated than the roadside stuff. Yes. Then you can call a lawyer. You can, yes. And okay. At, at that point, you should talk to a lawyer because the uh, the drug recognition evaluation, those 12 steps that they do at the police station, there are certain things that police are allowed to do and not allowed to do. And if you don't know the extent of their authority, you might give them more information willingly than you're actually obligated to do. One of the things is they check your, your body for puncture sites. And of course, we've all in the summer weather had a mosquito bite that ends up looking like a, a needle injection site or um, any bug bite. I still have a few left from my Ontario trip. <laughs> yes. So, so I'd, be, I'd be a real easy mark on the side of the road, wouldn't you I? You would be. Or if you're a diabetic and you inject yourself with insulin, sure, yeah. they're supposed to check your body for injection sites. But the, the law actually only limits their ability to check you for exposed skin. So if you were to call me, I would say, you know, make sure if you're wearing a long sleeve shirt that you keep your sleeves down, make sure, you know, your socks are pulled up, make sure that you're exposing as little skin as you possibly can in what you're wearing and don't expose any while you're dealing with the officer because they can't ask you to expose skin for the testing. They can't. But if you do, however uh, innocently, they can take advantage of that. Yes. Interesting stuff. Now, you were talking earlier about uh, some cases that are, well, not pending yet before the Supreme Court, but that are in the mix, that are kind of being built. What is the, what is the premise of, of, of these pitches, hopefully, uh, ultimately, to the Supremes? Is it all about roadside testing and the manner in which they are conducted? What, what's, what's the fine legal point? So the question is whether or not random breath testing that we talked about at the beginning of the program, whether that's constitutionally valid and whether police have the authority to ask people to do that. And there are three cases that are joined together, one um, for a client that I'm representing, and then two that have received a lot of uh, public attention um, involving two individuals in Victoria who had difficulty providing random breath samples due to medical conditions. Right, right. One of the person had COPD or some other real difficult breathing condition and simply didn't have the, the wherewithal, the push power to move the breathalyzer, couldn't take the test. 
obviously because of a physical impairment. Nothing to do with alcohol or otherwise. It's a medical condition. And yet, what was were they charged because they didn't take the test? They received penalties under British Columbia's immediate roadside prohibition scheme. But because that prohibition scheme depends upon the criminal code demand for a random sample, right. they can challenge the criminal code law through that mechanism. So it takes it directly to Supreme Court. It doesn't have to happen in provincial court like other cases will across the country. Uh, to, to cutting back to this whole matter of the, the BC laws, and I'm going back to my story about last weekend's big counterattack blitz. Over three days, 350 drivers were pulled over, given drug and alcohol tests, 44 license suspensions, Kyla, and 35 vehicle impairments. This is just one uh, sample weekend last weekend, as it turns out. That's the, the uh, vehicle impoundments. That's a BC law, isn't it? That's correct, yes. So what happens then in that case when your vehicle is impounded? What have you done and how do you get it unimpounded? <laughs> well, if you uh, blow a fail into a roadside breathalyzer, uh, then you're going to get 90-day license suspension and 30-day vehicle impound automatically. And uh, the only there's only a couple ways to get the vehicle impound out of the impound. Uh, the first is to dispute it with uh, the superintendent of motor vehicles on either compassionate grounds or because the vehicle is registered to a business, or if you're the owner and someone took your vehicle without oh, your permission, of course you can you can dispute it on that basis. Um, if you're successful in disputing the prohibition itself, the vehicle's also released early from the impound, and you don't have to pay any of the costs associated with the time it's been in there that far. Oh, but there is a little matter of uh, assuming that all things went against you uh there your your vehicle is impounded for a month but to get your vehicle back you have to pay for having it parked for a month yes and that ain't cheap is it it's a little under a thousand dollars and are there any other financial penalties that accompany having a vehicle impounded, given the fact that you would have been seen to be impaired to some extent, or they wouldn't have taken your car away? There's a $500 fine, a $250 license reinstatement fee, a $31 short-term license administration fee, because they don't give you your five-year license back. They give you a two-year license. Oh. And uh, you also have to enroll in and complete the Responsible Driver Program, which is like an alcohol counseling and driving course, and that's $850 dollars plus tax as well. So you're looking at about three grand. A little over three three thousand, yeah. Plus, presumably, legal fees to sort of get you through the maze in the first place. If you hire a lawyer, yes, there are going to be legal fees on top of that. But if you hire a lawyer and you are successful in the dispute, generally speaking, I mean, I can't speak for every law firm, but for us anyway, the legal fees are far less than what the consequences would be if you were stuck with them. So it's worth it if you succeed. Right. I think that, you know, I'm just looking at some of the emails that are coming in as well. And, and, and I'm just getting on that Angela here is saying, basically, you know, uh, it, it sounds like you're trying to advocate for impaired drivers. And Angela, thank you for your note. And I appreciate your listening this afternoon, but I think you're reading us incorrectly. What Kyla and I are trying to do is, as, as we have done several times since this, this whole business began last fall, is basically just get everyone up to speed on what these changes are. Uh, again, ignorance of the law is never an excuse. So at very, very least, Kyla, all we want to do is have people know what they're up against. Yes, people should be informed of their rights. And like I said, informed of their obligations, because, you know, people who refuse to blow because they're drunk are obviously people we want to be detected and we want them to be providing a sample so that they can be legitimately removed from the road. Sure. People that are innocent, people like that last caller who doesn't 
doesn't drink any alcohol at all and mm. doesn't do any drugs, he might feel compelled to refuse because he thinks it's ridiculous he's being asked to participate in the process. But he shouldn't have to face a criminal record, so he should know what his obligations are so that he doesn't find himself in that situation. Interesting. You were talking about uh, having his uh, pills, his, his vitamins, uh, sort of discreetly tucked away in the glove box or somewhere. We did a story on this show a week or so ago from the Edmondson Police Service. They had a campaign running called Put Your Skunk in the Trunk, <laughs> which was kind of cute. But basically, it was if don't have pot, because it's legal now, doesn't mean you can carry it in your vehicle. Literally, if you have, if you're going from the pot shop to home, you should put you put that little brown bag of marijuana in your trunk so that you can't be seen to having access to it because if it's just sitting on the seat beside you, still in the little brown bag, even with the receipt tucked inside, Kyla, technically, it's illegal. In Alberta, yes. In British Columbia, we have a little bit more leniency for people. Um, you do have the right to transport it in your vehicle if it's still in the sealed, approved Health Canada packaging. Right. But you don't want to get into a situation where a police officer is pulling you over, taking you out of your car, inspecting all of your belongings to see if you're violating the law. Leave it out of sight. That way you're not asked any questions about it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, when fireworks people go down to the English Bay and surrounding areas tonight, the cops are going to be watching for alcohol. And there will be the usual... Uh, pour-outs, I believe they're called. That's, that's what they just literally just take your little uh, uh, canteen or whatever and just pour it out on the sidewalk. There will be the same sort of roadside justice handed out to people smoking, presumably walking the sidewalks and standing around watching the fireworks, right? Yes. Put you it have, out. You have to be very careful about where you're smoking in public. Even though cannabis is legal, you still can't just sit on a city beach and smoke a, a joint while watching the fireworks, especially if you're in a situation where there are children and families involved. You don't want to get into a situation where you're using cannabis in front of children because Mm -hmm. there are all sorts of restrictions on marketing or making cannabis available to children and you don't want to be misunderstood for having done that and then arrested for what is still a very serious criminal offense. And sooner or later, we're going to get, I mean, edibles aren't even legal for crying out loud, but sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with the very real assembly issue well you know it's no problem meeting a friend after work for a drink is there you can go to hundreds of bars around vancouver do you want to meet a friend for a smoke after work kind of chill a little get ready for the weekend where do you go somewhere you're going to be arrested that's got to change It does. And I think we'll see the provincial government bringing in cannabis lounges and places where people can consume cannabis like you can drink alcohol in a bar in the near future. I know that they're looking into options for making that available and having some safe consumption spaces. And we do have designated cannabis smoking areas like at Vancouver Airport. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think as time progresses, the the trend will be to increase those. Um, But right now, the places where you can do it are extremely limited. And you should pay attention that when you're smoking, using smoke cannabis products, you have to abide not just by the cannabis smoking laws, but also the general smoking laws sure, that sure. apply in the province. Interesting stuff. Kyla, we're fresh out of time. I'm always grateful for yours. It's a pleasure to have you back and no doubt we'll be bothering you again for a return appearance in another month or two. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. And once again, our thanks to criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee for another very helpful visit. And thanks very much for your calls as well. A very fast-moving hour. Time now for Duly Noted. And this time around, our producer Ben Dooley has a look at an accidental dumping of personal information. 
Thanks, Sterling. The owner of a Vancouver travel company is promising to do better after hundreds of pieces of his client's personal information were found abandoned in a recycling bin. Thousands of pages of sensitive personal information, credit card numbers, checks, photocopies of children's passports, signatures, and home addresses were left out in the open in the basement recycling bin of a downtown Vancouver high-rise. Former Global BC staffer Peter Meisner found the documents seemingly undisturbed in his building's recycling bin and contacted authorities. The documents came from Affinity Tour Groups, a neighboring travel agency for school groups. Owner Sean Galaxy says the breach was caused by a mistake by his 16-year-old son, who is helping out at the office for the summer. Basically, the wrong bins ended up in the wrong location, so my son was helping me this morning, uh, yesterday, and um, we he unintentionally, unintentionally threw the wrong bins into the garbage, the recycling. Gallagher said the company plans to contract all the schools and kids involved. Consumer protection groups want procedures for rectifying a breach like this one. BC's Privacy Commissioner is looking into the breach. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thank you, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we have to go, and we've reported a few times on this story, so here's the latest on Woodstock 50, the 50th anniversary concert of the iconic August 1969 festival in upstate New York. Last time we checked, the organizers had tried multiple times to get first Watkins Glen car racetrack, and then several times a horse racing track in nearby Vernon as a location, but were turned down flat by local governments. Even though 70 musical acts have been signed and paid to play, until this week there was nowhere for them to go. The lineup announced earlier this year boasted heavy hitters like Jay-Z and Miley Cyrus, along with performers who played at the original performance like John Fogarty and Santana. Well, now they have a destination Maryland, not even close to upstate New York, but a venue nonetheless. The place to be, August 16th through 18th, is Columbia, Maryland, which is a part of both metropolitan Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and that suburban no-man's land between those two cities. According to Woodstock.com, today tickets will be on sale soon. Now, ABC is reporting today Jay-Z and John Fogarty have pulled out and many other performers who have been signed and paid are also looking to bail, Uh, a lot of it predicated on the fact that they thought they were going to be playing in upstate New York. And that's where John Fogarty says he will be on the anniversary of the real Woodstock 50 years ago. And by the way, Fogarty plays Vancouver on October 13th. Another quick reminder for those heading to India's night at the Honda Celebration of Light Fireworks show tonight. TransLink is now running rush hour service on all SkyTrain lines through the rest of the evening. Last trains leave downtown, unfortunately still around 1.15. Seabus will have extra sailings today. There will be a special West Coast Express train leaving Mission at 7, returning at midnight. It's already super busy downtown. The Lions game starts in two minutes with Saskatchewan. The Backstreet Boys are on stage uh, tonight at Rogers Arena at 8. And then, of course, there's a little matter of the fireworks at 10. So if you're planning to head downtown, take transit and spare yourself the headache of the traffic jam at the end of the evening. That is our show for this week, produced by Ben Dooley, Tim French, capable hands on the controls. Email us to sterling at cknw.com or tweet your comments and suggestions to us 
at Van Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox for all of us on the show. Enjoy the fireworks tonight. We'll see you next Saturday afternoon at 2 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.